This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I think cis people are beginning to understand the way that gender works and their own gender through ideas that come from a trans lens. That is Tori Peters. She is the author of the new novel, Detransition Baby. If you just go on Twitter and you see memes that are like the two genders and like, you know, one gender is like a trash can and one's a lamp where it's not, (laughs) there aren't, it's not like male or female. So Tori has noticed this trans lens more and more in the wider culture. This understanding that gender is not fixed, that it can be performed and presented in many ways. Gender can be done even through trash cans or lamps or sea captains. Yeah, you look at something like that fad for like the sea shanty song. Oh, yeah. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. What people were really liking was like there was a gender performance in the sea shanty singers, you know, and it's like you're doing a gender. Your gender is like sea captain or like sailor. And so doing gender, it's this thing that's really easy to see everybody doing once you begin to look for it. You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. In this episode, Tori Peters and her new book, Detransition Baby. That book views a lot through a trans lens. Tori says that when she writes, her audience, in her mind, is always other trans women, like her. She does not dump things down for cisgender readers, like me. But there are a lot of ways that her book has made trans and cis people alike ask themselves a lot of questions about how gender works in their own lives. You don't have to have a trans body or a cis body or to all these different things. We can begin to play with it. And that's kind of like the place that I'm like writing into. So there are three main characters in this book. Reese, a trans woman. Ames, her ex, who was a trans woman that has detransitioned. And Ames's new girlfriend, a cisgender divorced woman named Katrina, who also happens to be Ames's boss. After detransitioning, Ames gets Katrina pregnant. And then Ames asks Reese and Katrina, his ex and his current girlfriend, if all three of them could raise that baby together. I know, it's complicated. A lot of entanglements, a lot of drama. And listeners, it only escalates over the course of this book. I am most obsessed with Ames. Really? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I actually love that you're names. Like, I, I feel like people have read this book and what people used to do with Sex in the City where they're like, I'm a carrier, I'm a Samantha or something like that. It tells me something about the reader, oh, yeah. which is fun for me. Yeah. My editor just slacked me and she wrote, I am an Ames doing the work of Katrina. Yeah. <laughs> mm, rising Ames, cusp Katrina or whatever the astrology kids would call it. I don't know. Before we got into the book, I had to ask Tori about the response to it. There is so much discussion around Detransition Baby that discusses it like it is, you know, the first trans mainstream hit novel from a major publisher, which when I first was seeing this, I was like, well, good for her. But you've tweeted that that framing of your book in that way as a first, it misses a lot of context. What is that context? Well, I came out of a scene, you know, and and I stand sort of like on the shoulders of like the people who who taught me a lot. Like there's a kind of collective knowledge in the book that came out of a scene, sort of a Brooklyn trans lit scene around 2014. 
I mean, I moved to Brooklyn really to be part of this scene. We thought it was going to be sort of like yeah. the Harlem Renaissance of, of trans writing or like Paris in the 20s yeah. of trans writing. But the, the idea of the scene was trans women writing for other trans women. And by writing for other trans women, it sets the bar really high. Like you never slow down to explain anything because trans women already know. So previously, I think a lot of trans writing had been like, maybe 70% story and like 30% slowing down. Mm. And when you're writing for other trans women, you're writing at full speed. I mean, that was something that we thought about a lot in relation to Toni Morrison, where Toni Morrison said she writes explicitly for other black women and that everybody yeah. else can keep up. And we thought like, we'll just write a f- like a flat out run and everybody else can keep up. I mean, they have Google. And, uh, and mm-hmm. so we started doing it that way. And, it felt it felt really good, and it it also made you it made me and I think it made the other woman a better writer, because like let's say you want to talk about like taking your hormones or something, if you can tell that to cis people and they're like wow tell me about hormones, but if you tell that to another trans girl she'll yawn in your face because she's been doing it for five years. <laughs> so, say no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. like yeah I know I did it like you know two hours ago. So in order to really tell a good story, you had to bring something fresh. If you want to talk about hormones, you have to say something new about hormones. And so it was kind of like this ethos that we was being developed in, in, in like 2014 and that there were these other books that taught me how to write and taught me how to think about, you know, my transness and about gender and about just kind of womanhood in general. And my book happened to be on Random House and so it's gotten a certain kind of attention, but it didn't happen by myself. Like it actually happened mm. from within a community and I hope they get those chances too. Yeah. Well, and and now what I'm seeing in so many of the conversations you're having around this book with other folks is that there is a moment now in which the normative culture, the dominant culture can begin to see their world through a trans lens um, and I want to unpack more of that and what it means because I was really fascinated by that. But first, I guess we got to tell folks what your book is. Give us a quick synopsis of Detransition Baby without any spoilers. Okay, so the novel starts with Reese, who you can think of as sort of like Fleabag, but trans and in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, you know, okay. In the same way that like Fleabag's life is a little bit messy, so is Reese's. And she's kind of reeling still from the fallout of a breakup with her ex-girlfriend, who was also a trans woman, who then detransitioned from Amy to Ames. And the action of the novel kicks off when Ames contacts her again and asks Reese, would you like to be a mother because Ames has gotten his boss, Katrina, pregnant and Katrina and Ames are trying to figure out how to raise the baby. And then I realize that sounds complicated, but that's just the beginning, and then it, it goes from there. That's all yeah. the first chapter, by the way. <laughs> Listen, I mean, you're coming hot, and I love it. <laughs> um, you draw some parallels between cis women and divorced cis women and trans women. And you even dedicate this book to divorced cis women. And you write in that dedication, like me, they have had to face starting their life over without either reinvesting in the illusions from the past or growing bitter about the future. I love that. And it's beautiful. Unpack that for me and and tell me how you got there. 
Well, I was in my 30s. I'm still in my 30s, but I was in my early 30s. And, you know, transition was kind of over for me. There was a lot of drama when anybody transitions, and, and there was for me. And then I was looking around, and I was like, well, now what? How do I find meaning? Mm. And um, the previous generation of trans women, I'm very grateful for them. But the, a lot of them were also kind of figuring out how to find meaning because things have really changed in the last 10 or 20 years. You know, 20 years ago, I think the big question for life if you're a trans woman is like, just how do you survive? You know, how do you, how mm. do you, how do you just be okay day to day? And I had a bigger horizon than just day to day. Um, and so I'd say to these other trans women, I'd say, well, how do you plan for five years? How do you plan for 10 years? And they'd say, I don't know. You know, um, not all of them, but but many of them. And uh, and so then I was looking around for role models, and I was looking around for like, how do you make meaning after this? And I came across a lot of books by divorced cis women who got to this place, usually in their 30s, where they just suddenly had to start their life over. And there was a bunch of wisdom and ways of looking at the world in these books that I kept on returning to them. And I was like, oh, why do I keep going back? And I realized that like, oh actually they were models for me on how to live because what i was finding mm. in them is i was finding that they, they had experienced a break in life you know a moment of changing in which they had to reassess themselves and they had to be honest about who they were and what they wanted and then they had to make a plan going forward they couldn't stay stuck and the kind of questions that they had to ask themselves were so similar to the questions that i had to ask myself as a trans woman about what i wanted what i cared about and I sort of began taking on their stances, the, the stances from these books and from these stories and from these media. And I realized also, though, that I had something that I wanted to say to them. They were teaching mm. me something about womanhood, but there was a way of looking at gender that trans people have developed and that trans women have a way of thinking about gender that um, I really thought could be useful to them. And so I was like, well, I'm going to write a book that's the same kind of social comedy of airs, social realism, um, as the books that, that taught me. And I want to write it in that vein, but I want to talk back. I want it to be a conversation between us. Yeah. In your life, you transitioned and got divorced kind of around the same time? I did, yeah. I mean, it's funny that divorce was like a metaphor for me or an analogy. It was like only mm. like two years later that I was like, wait, I also got divorced. Like, you know? <laughs> I was like, I'm looking at it through this like, you know, sophisticated literary lens and that's why I like relate. And then I was like, no, wait, I'm actually a divorced woman, you know? Um, and it was... I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why transition was very traumatic for me is that it really was a break from so many things in my life. It was a break from my past. It was a break from my relationships. It was a break from the kind of opportunities. You know, it, it's a little sometimes difficult. To, you know, people want to say, well, if you're trans or you're a woman, you're always a woman. But in my 20s, I was offered a lot of the opportunities that like a white man in America was offered. And yeah. it was shocking to me. Um, it shouldn't have been, I should have realized, but it was to actually feel it, the, the ways that those opportunities dropped away when I was suddenly like, you know, a really? transsexual woman and to, to have to sort of reassess it, it, without all of the normal supports that I had, because I was also losing all those other supports. Um, uh, it was, a, it was a, it was a hard period. Coming up, Tori tells me why discussing detransition 
isn't always welcome in the trans community. And why she still talked about it anyway. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. The news is about more than what just happened. You need to know why it happened, who made it happen, how it's felt in the communities you care about. NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This, gives you all of that, with context, backstory, and analysis on a single topic every weekday. It's not just information, it's what the news means. Consider This from NPR. So the central premise and the central plot point in the book is these three people might create a family and raise a child together. It is all about, you know, pushing against the sometimes confining constraints of what we see as a usual marriage. Do you think that there is one big thing that you were trying to say with three people potentially raising one child together. Was there a big message there that you wanted to grapple with or it was just a cool plot device to play with for a book? I think it was more the latter. I've always liked sort of triangles in literary plots, like something like Great Gatsby or, you know, there's there's triangles all over the place. And, and so I've yeah. always enjoyed that. But to sort of answer more closely your question, I think what I was trying to get at was less prescribing to people this is a way of doing this so much as asking a question that Mm. I think that all three of those characters were kind of stuck in certain ways of seeing the world and the the book Mm. is about the things that they were sure of their sort of biases and their judgments and that sort of and their coping mechanisms all of that stuff unraveling you know, and and as they unraveled, they moved closer together. And at the end, mm. what I wanted them is I wanted them in a room together with all of their biases, all of their coping mechanisms, all of their sort of judgments stripped away from them. Mm. And then I wanted them to solve the problem of like, how do you live? And the, the truth is, as a writer, I think that's a generational problem. How are we going to live now? Yeah. Because... I don't want to, no spoilers, but the book stops where it does (laughs) because this is actually for readers to solve. Because I see a lot of like cis women I know, like the divorced women that I dedicated to, but other women in in my life, and definitely also other men in, in my life where they're like, the ways that we've been doing things, like a sort of very strict nuclear family or very, doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Strong, kind of constraining gender roles or, ideas about heterosexuality and like the way that it's conducted that people are like this isn't working so i I read essays out by straight cis women and they're they have titles of things like hetero pessimism and it's like this isn't (laughs) this isn't working for anybody you know so i think the book is less an answer to this question than than really trying to define the question through these experiences of three people who are actually quite different to hear you talk about that how the central question is like what do you do next after you figure out everything you have been doing isn't working? 
like that as the crux of this book and this like way of seeing the world through a trans lens. If I'm big picturing over the last year, I kind of want to say this last year of pandemic and lockdown has been a truly trans moment. Everything that we used to do seems like it doesn't work anymore. We might not ever return to what we were before, and we have to find a new way to live in this world and see ourselves in this world. This is a moment of transition for all of us. Absolutely. Yeah, you said it, you said it better than I could have. So, but I think it's true. I mean, there's, there's something I talked about in sort of like the, the, in other places is an evolution of the literature of marginalized people where there's, there's different stages and mm. like sort of a first stage would be like, we're just like you, like we want your approval to the, to the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. The second stage would be like, mm-hmm. actually we're nothing like you go away. And then like a third <laughs> stage would be like, we define ourselves separate from you. We don't have anything to do with you. We don't reject you or accept you. It's, it's we're separate from you. And then I think there's a fourth stage, which is what, I think the trans literature is in right now and that many types of things Mm -hmm. are in right now where the dominant culture begins to understand itself through the terms set by the marginalized culture. So that like, you know, this happened with, with sexuality where straight people now sort of understand the terms of their own sexuality through ideas and concepts that were created by queer people or queer scholars. I think white people understand their own, their own, race and and questions of race through work done by black scholars and people of color and that's that's kind of like the place that i'm like writing into I'm, i'm writing into like this moment that i think is happening and i hope that rather than being like oh we're losing something and we're scared that it actually can be like a hopeful or playful moment yeah yeah all right back to the book um So writing about detransitioning in the book, that is not something that everyone in the trans community is actually comfortable with, right? And, like, in the book, you write about your trans characters' discomfort with people who detransition. Why was it so important to you to write about a character who detransitions, and was there any fear about backlash from in the community? Yeah, I was afraid of backlash within the community, and I was afraid of backlash outside of the community. Detransition is something that's been weaponized against trans people, that when people detransition, they say, see, it doesn't work. This isn't real. This is um, like a mental illness and that the people who transition Mm. regret it. So therefore nobody should transition. And, Mm. you know, trans people in that way shouldn't exist. Um, Mm. And so I think because it's been so weaponized, trans people are scared to talk about it. If you talk about like, oh, things are really hard. You know, a lot of people that I know detransitioned because it was really hard to live as a trans woman and or a trans man. And they, they detransition not because they don't have those feelings, but because it's just so difficult. But that reality doesn't get talked about because if you talk about that reality, then it ends up getting weaponized against other trans people. And so I kind of wanted to say that, like, that whole conversation is a distraction. It, like, And that mm. in order to detransition, you have to first transition. So therefore, detransition belongs to trans people. It's ours. And we shouldn't let other mm. people weaponize it against us. And if it does belong to us, we should talk about what it actually means in an honest way, in like a non-fearful way. And 
if you don't, if you can't talk about regret and you can't talk about it openly and sort of within the community, those regrets, they fester and, and they become shame. It's, it's so interesting hearing you talk about this and how the trans community grapples with the way other communities might see conversation about detransitioning. It feels a lot about this discourse that happens so much in and around black art for a long time, and I think we've gotten over it. But there was this idea that, like, you couldn't share the family business for, like, widespread or white consumption. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have any conversations or art that would give the people that want to say bad things about black people fodder. So everything in black art and film and performance had to be performatively righteous and it had to be good so that the enemies of black people got no ammo. And I think we as a community have finally gotten past that and said we get to make the full range of art as we see fit, just like the white people get to do. And I don't know, I just hear parallels in that, hearing you talk about feeling free to write about detransitioning. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I mean, I mentioned Toni Morrison once already in this interview, but I think another quote of hers is that the very serious work of racism is distraction. And I feel like she rejected that distraction. She was like, because she does write flawed characters. She writes difficult characters. And, um, And for me, that was a model. That was like, you know, you look at what actually gets talked about outside of trans community and it's like bathroom bills right and like there is Mm -hmm. nothing more like of a ridiculous distraction than where someone pees like it's an embarrassing undignified conversation (laughs) and yeah if you enter into that conversation and suddenly you're like lost in this like ridiculous yeah there's no way to be dignified in that argument and so that distraction is one and so for me it was like detransition as, as, as it gets weaponized is also a distraction. So I'm like, I'm going to reject that distraction and I'm going to write about things that matter. Um, and similarly, if I want to have all of the tools that all these other artists have, I have to have flawed characters. I can't have like, every story can't be a resilient story. Characters have to be messy. Mm. They have to make mistakes. And I have to actually not be writing with the burden of representation. Like, my characters, they're not just trans women. They're very specific types of trans women. Like, I'm writing about really white trans women in Brooklyn who are like me. And Mm. if I try to represent all trans women, first of all, everyone will be like, that's not my story, so you've misrepresented Mm. me. And number two, I won't be able to say a lot. Like, the jokes that I make, they're like catty jokes. You know, like, I make fun of people in the narrative voice, especially of Reese. And so I have to be really specific about who I make fun of if I want that to land. Like a joke about someone like me in Brooklyn, you know, wanting a, a KitchenAid mixer or something like that. That yeah. that joke you works. You can do that. I can do that. And that joke works if I'm really specific to myself, if I'm not trying to represent all trans women. And so yes. I, I yeah. kind of, in order to be like just funny, in order to tell a good joke, I can't do it with the burden of representation. And so I try to make it clear who I'm making fun of and, you know, usually myself um, in this book. <laughs> and that way, that way it lands. And, and the models for that I got from black literature. Coming up, how to view the act of parenting itself through a trans lens. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. 
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. When the survivors of a mass shooting at a newspaper went back to work, everything was different, even email. What if someone's sending us more death threats, or what if somebody sends me a death threat and I don't see it, and then somebody comes and kills all my friends, and it's my fault because I didn't read the email? That's this week on the Capital Gazette series from NPR's Embedded. I want to get into how Ames came to be. Um, I read that the character of Ames came out of a not-so-great trip that you took to Mexico? Mm-hmm. The voice of Reese, which is that sort of catty, like very high femme catty voice, that was a voice that was easy for me. Um, but mm. finding the voice of Ames was a little bit harder. This sort of like, mm. I think of Ames as very dissociated. Like he's a little bit distanced from himself. He sort of watches what he does from outside of himself. And um, I was having a hard time in, in 2017. I had a friend who was getting um, a gender surgery um, in, in Guadalajara, which is now you, there's more options in the United States, but there's sort of kind of famously trans girls go to Mexico and Argentina. So I had gone with a friend to take care of her after her surgery in Guadalajara. And my passport hadn't yet been changed, the, the MF, you know, gender marker in my passport. And I just really didn't want to deal with customs. And I had this suit, this like sort of reservoir dog style suit hanging in my closet, you know, like black suit, skinny black tie, white shirt, um, pretty skeezy suit, honestly. And um, <laughs> I was like, well, I'll just wear this. So I did that. And of course, the airline lost my luggage. So I spent kind of like mm. a week or two wandering around Guadalajara in this black, like reservoir dog style suit. And I was having a hard time in my life. I was really, I did have a lot of regrets about stuff that I'd lost in my, you know, with the divorce and things actually stopped hurting as much. Like when I was in this state, you know, mm. like it was like armor, mm. you know, I would go in and I know that I looked weird, but, but I was just so far from myself in that moment that you know, if people gave me a weird look or something, like it, it just bounced right off of me. And I felt in some ways almost formidable in a way that that I hadn't, I'd felt so raw after transition for so long that anybody just poking me wrong could hurt. And then I returned to the state in this suit and, and I suddenly had this armor and I was fearsome in a way that I wasn't normally and untouchable in some ways. Uh, in, in both the mm. good and bad mm. senses of that word. And for me, that was sort of like that place is where I started writing the character of Ames. Like there's a way in which he's he's moved away from himself and there's a kind of attractiveness almost like a, I, I use the word louche in it. There's like a louche attractiveness to him being in this way that he is. Um, but you know, then then my luggage came and and I and I was like, oh, that was a weird <laughs> week. <laughs> Let's write a book about it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, and that was that was the voice of Ames. Yeah. So Ames is detransitioning to be a man, and Ames wants this baby with Katrina, this this woman. But Ames doesn't want to be a father. Mm-hmm like quote unquote father and that so stuck with me and I grapple with that and it's like what does it mean when someone like Ames wants to keep living as a man maybe even wants to build a family but doesn't want to be a father what does that mean 
Well, I mean, I know about it specifically for Ames. For him, it was that when you're a father, it's you have to be known. Like, you have to be known to your children, you know? And your children are going to find you out eventually. They're mm. going to find you out mm. in therapy. They're going to write books about you. Children make a study of their parents. And I think that Ames felt, because of his gender, that no matter what, if a study was made of him, he'd come out as a failure to the child. And I, that's one mm. piece of it. And I think the second piece is that also the idea of a father, like the way that, that people talk about fatherhood as like, you know, the sort of like potent figure, um, was something that he was ultimately really, really uncomfortable with. That wasn't a role or responsibility that he wanted to take on. And so the idea of being a parent, you know, it, it, it seems like a distinction without meaning, the difference between a, being a father and a parent. But for him, I think it was really important. He could be a parent. He could love a child as himself, but he couldn't love a child in the role of a father. You know, kind of riffing on that for other people... I think that also that this is like a I think a lot about what people called maybe a couple of years ago like a crisis of masculinity like in this country. Yeah. And yeah. I kind of want to talk about pickup truck ads like uh which huh. is a really random digression which I didn't know I was going to make but I used to think a lot Let's about do it. <laughs> pickup truck ads where um like, it used to be, like, why did you get a truck if you're a dad? Like, you get a truck because you're going to work all day and you're going to take care of your family, and so you need a truck. And so the family's going to sacrifice, and they're going to put all this money into it so you can buy a truck so you can make money and take care of your family. But if you look at, mm. like, pickup truck ads now, they're not about can you take care of your family with this truck. It's about looking manly. Exactly. And and with a bunch of other dudes. Like, if you look at the picture, it's like <laughs> a bunch of dudes getting muddy. The kids muddy. aren't there. <laughs> yeah, like getting yeah. muddy, like, look how strong my truck is with my bros or whatever. And the idea of masculinity as, like, a power versus, like, I'm going to take care of a family, like, they've become separated somehow. And, you mm. know, that's extrapolating a lot from a pickup truck ad. But I do feel oh, no, no. it's working for me. Yeah, I feel it. <laughs> I do. I do, too. And so I think that, like, you know, the the there's a lot of like when Ames also wanted to be like, well, people could be like, well, there's a lot of different ways to be a father. And I just like want to look around at our culture and be like, is there, though? Yeah. Well, and, and it's like it stuck with me so much because I realized in reading about Ames and, and in seeing Ames ask this question, I realized I've quietly been asking myself the same question the last year or two without knowing it like i want to be a dad one day mm -hmm. i'm 36 years old i think it'd be cool to do it in the next few years i don't know how to do it i know it won't look like my parents relationship because like they were straight and i'm gay but i think a lot of what i'm dealing with and like the hesitation about how to do it is that i in actuality don't want to be a quote-unquote father yeah and i don't want to be my dad i love my dad he was good but he was stoic and silent in this way that I can't be. And I want to figure out how to be a parent without being a father. And reading Ames experience that and ask that question confirmed that I have been asking that question myself. So I suppose perhaps another way in which those of us who aren't trans can begin to see our worlds through a trans lens. So thanks for that. I love that, actually, because so much of this book, you know, the, the just my position, the way I ask the questions is is about motherhood. And I hadn't actually considered the ways in which, like, there's also, like, an inverse of that 
for fatherhood. So I'm I'm actually really grateful for for you for telling me that. Thank you. This book also, besides playing with the ideas of parenthood, it plays with the idea of adult romantic relationships, particularly queer romantic relationships, as mirroring in many ways parent-child relationships. And there's this lovely exchange with Thalia, Reese's friend, during Thalia's drag show, where Reese is waxing poetic about being a mother to Thalia at a certain moment. And also being a mother to Amy, now Ames, when she was transitioning. And so much of the language about the queer relationships in this book deal with parent-child dynamics. And I realize that's also so much of the language of like gay relationships, father and son ideas. Do you think this conceptualization of romantic relationships through a parent-child lens, is it specifically a queer thing? Or is it a thing that all relationships actually mirror? I think it's not. I think it's that queers name something that is the case for a lot of people, right? Like, I mean, this is like Freud, right? Where Freud is like, everybody wants to, you know, be with their mom or like Oedipal relationships and stuff, you know, that that it's all over the place. I think the thing is that um, queer people are really willing to do some like dangerous work around it, which is that they're willing to like name that in erotic relationships. Now suddenly, straight people too are all calling each other daddy. I don't know if this is something you've noticed. And I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> they like, can't have that. But they're all doing it now, and so it's like, yeah. well, you know, straight people are are finally coming around to the fact that like there is an erotic component to these relationships, and it's and the ways in which you talk about it and separate it, I think, is work that has largely been done, you know, by queers, um, especially because. Yeah queers are also historically cast out from their families. So mm-hmm. so it's like if you don't... They had to build these new families. Right, they had to build these new families. And, and sometimes they borrowed you know, terms and, and ways of thinking from their old families. A lot of times also it's tongue-in-cheek. You know, like when Reese calls Talia her daughter, she both means it and also is like she's kind of pulling rank, you know, on, on Talia. And that, mm-hmm. that for me is like... I have trans daughters and like when I when I say like you can't talk to your mom that way it's like that's a joke because <laughs> I'm obviously talking to like a fully formed adult who can do whatever she wants you know and I think that the fact that it's happening on both levels is is a little bit like the pleasure of that scene for me yeah yeah you know we have talked about this book and themes around the book and we've managed to not really give away any spoilers, so I'm proud of us for that. Yeah, thank Applause, you. <laughs> pats on the back. But I want to leave you with one last question. Um, you told New York Magazine that writing this book was a, quote, thought experiment for how to live as a trans woman. Now that this book is done and it's out in the world, what would you say as a scientist who led the experiment is the result of that experiment? for you and your readers? I think the, uh, sadly, further experiments are ongoing. (laughs) 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 And I encourage other labs to take up the question. Okay. Tori Peters, thank you so much for your book, for this conversation. I appreciate you and all you do. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Tori Peters. Her new novel, Detransition Baby, is out right now. Go read it. It's good and already a bestseller. 
This episode was produced by Sylvie Douglas and Liam McBain, and it was edited by Jordana Hochman. Listeners, till Friday, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, historians, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Host a celebratory brunch for less with 365 by Whole Foods Market. Featuring wallet-happy finds like cold smoked Atlantic salmon and more. This message comes from The Run-Through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.